Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. January 22nd marks the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which legalized the right to an abortion in the United States. The ultra-conservatives on the Supreme Court enabled ended that right by overturning Roe in June 2022. Abortion is now completely banned with very few exceptions in 15 states, according to the Guttmacher Institute. Nearly one in five patients are now traveling out of state for care. So how did we get here? What is the Republican Party's endgame? How much further are they willing to go? Filmmaker Dorothy Fadiman has spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. When she was a college student in 1962, she became unintentionally pregnant. She had no savings, no committed partner, and her family was 3,000 miles away. Abortion was illegal in California back then, so she paid $600 cash to a stranger, a person whose face she never saw. She was blindfolded throughout the procedure. Soon afterward, she began to hemorrhage and ended up on the intensive care ward of Stanford Hospital with a fever of 105 and septicemia, a blood infection that has killed so many women who risked the back alleys or aborted themselves. Dorothy kept her story to herself and remained silent for 30 years. In 1991, she realized that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade. Most people had no idea what the dangers of the back alleys had been when abortion was illegal. So she decided to make a documentary based on what she lived through and survived and what had happened to so many other women. The Oscar-nominated short film, When Abortion Was Illegal, Untold Stories, became the first of three in the trilogy from the back alleys to the Supreme Court and beyond. Dorothy Fadiman has producing, uh, been producing documentaries with a focus on social justice and human rights for almost five decades. Her book, Producing with Passion, Making Films that Change the World, follows her career and offers suggestions for independent filmmakers. Dorothy teaches, gives seminars, leads workshops, and trains interns in filmmaking. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you, Rose. It's great to have you. Professor Michelle Goodwin is a bioethicist, constitutional law scholar, and author. She is also a survivor of childhood rape and pregnancy. In 2021, she wrote a powerful op-ed for the New York Times called, I was raped by my father and abortion saved my life. Professor Goodwin writes, I will forever be grateful that my pregnancy was terminated. I am fortunate that my body was spared an additional trauma imposed by my father, one that today would be forced by some state legislatures and courts. No child should be pressured or expected to carry a pregnancy and give birth or to feel remorse, guilt, doubt, or unease about an abortion under any circumstances, let alone rape or incest. Professor Michelle Goodwin is a professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown Law School and co-faculty director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. She's the executive producer of Ms. Studios, host of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin, and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Hi, Professor Goodwin. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Professor Goodwin, I'd like to start with you. Given your story, Dorothy's story, and so many others that we are now hearing about, 
after the Supreme Court overturned Roe, given the work that you have done for so many years, did you ever think the Republican Party would go this far? Well, first, let me say that for your listeners, those who are presently listening and those that may listen in the future who've had the kinds of experiences that you just broadcasted, I want them to know that they are not alone. Um, I hear from many people who've read my op-ed in the New York Times expressing how over the years they've kept the trauma that they experienced secret and quiet and how it's even been difficult for them to talk about it now but how much they do appreciate, appreciate deeply when others have come forward for their stories. It's worth noting that Roe v. Wade was a seven to two decision. It wasn't close. Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe, was placed on the court by Richard Nixon. No one would dare say that Richard Nixon wasn't a true conservative, a true Republican He was not a bleeding heart liberal. And what we've seen over time has not been the sort of general Republican Party um, viewpoint. But it is true that between 2010 and 2013, there was a dramatic shift. That dramatic shift started with the Tea Party. Um, One began to see that a kind of old guard Republicanism began to lose its foothold in Congress and in state houses. Now we're even beyond the Tea Party itself. And in that period of time, while President Obama was in office, um, as this Tea Party rose up to to be in power, we saw more anti-abortion, anti-contraception laws being proposed and enacted than the prior 30 years combined. It was rigorous, it was forceful, but it would be a mistake to see it as just about reproductive health care rights and justice. Because what we also saw were encroachments on voting rights, which have mattered significantly to people of color in the United States, encroachments and attacks on immigration. And so as we think about what the future of reproductive health rights justice will be in the United States, these are narratives and stories that are also tethered to a broader dismantling of what we understood to be an American democracy, American values, and American principles. And that's really important to place in context, especially as those who happen to be most vulnerable in these times happen to be people who are carrying multiple identities of poverty, living in rural areas, women of color. Uh, and there are some very significant horrors that we now see unfolding that could have been anticipated. Um, and those include now seeing girls, 10, 11 years old, fleeing states in order to get abortions after rape, women who are near death, having to flee to other states to get the reproductive health care that they need. Uh, Women being arrested, such as Brittany Watts, her toilet destroyed after she had a miscarriage at home. That's the criminalization of this space. This is a very troubling time, not just for reproductive health care, but it's a very troubling time for our democracy in the United States. Professor Goodwin, whenever we do shows about where we are now, Many of the guests talk about how many in the major media really have failed on this issue because before the June 2022 Supreme Court decision, 
we've rarely heard about these stories. And now, as you say, we are reading these harrowing pieces about, for example, a 13-year-old from Mississippi who was raped by a stranger and is now a mother as she goes into the seventh grade, or a 10-year-old who was forced to travel from her home in Ohio to Indiana to receive an abortion after being raped. And I just wonder what your thoughts about that are. So all of these stories are coming at us, and yet where have they been for years? Because none of this is new. That's right, and it's an excellent question. And so much of it says, so much of it reveals the importance, even in progressive spaces, to be mindful about inequality and injustice. In the 1990s, the 2000s, there were women of color uh, undergoing forced coercive sterilizations. Um, there were women being shackled and chained after their medical providers had revealed their social medical histories to law enforcement prosecutors. Information that these women would have anticipated, reasonably so, would be confidential about the struggles that they had in their lives, about the potential the possibility that they used Valium or they used some other drug during their pregnancy, but actually seeking prenatal care. These women being policed, these women being arrested, those that had the possibility of giving birth in hospitals chained while giving birth, can you imagine? Or giving birth in prison toilets and on concrete floors. And this was pre-dops. This was at a time in which any of these women could have had abortions in Alabama, in South Carolina, uh, North Carolina, any of these states that now have draconian abortion laws, uh, before these laws existed, there were black and brown women being uh, forced into horrific situations, being denigrated during their pregnancies, calling out for help, but they were not the poster children for an abortion, mm-hmm. um, for reproductive health organizations that did not see them, almost quite literally, as being their constituency. These organizations fail to understand that the trauma that these women were experiencing really connected them as being the canaries in the coal mine, that what they experienced at some point later could affect middle-class white women. And certainly news outlets have failed over time to recognize the humanity and be deeply involved in the narratives and stories of women generally, and particularly women of color. I would say that something else that we are paying more attention to now, but certainly should have deserved attention five years ago, certainly three years ago before Dobbs, were the high rates of maternal mortality in the United States. We rank 55th in the world in terms of maternal health and safety. And for black women, they are three and a half times more likely than their white counterparts to die while simply giving birth. And much of these horrors are rooted in states that have strong anti-abortion policies. This was not being taken up by news media. This was generally being ignored also by reproductive uh, rights organizations. Now, both news media and also reproductive rights organizations are paying far more attention to this. But much of what we see today could have been addressed a decade ago or more. 
Exactly. And then as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking about where we are today. Nonstop coverage of the Iowa caucus. Now we're in the 24-7 election cycle. I have heard so many public radio uh, segments about the Republicans running. I have rarely heard one mention of abortion, where they stand on abortion, or any questions about these issues that you're raising right now. Well, and that takes us to deeper spaces as as well. In my book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, it was a book that was published in 2020. It's gotten enormous attention. But that book, it closes with an epilogue that is about um, sexual power, about sexual abuse and violence and how that is connected. We must see the political threads with that. And so you're right is you talk about the debates and very little attention on maternal mortality, on reproductive health and rights, uh, squarely put questions about their position when there are states that will deny medical care to women who are gestating fetuses that have no skull, Mm. that have no brain, women who are gestating fetuses um, that have uh, died in utero and yet not able to have those pregnancies terminated despite the fact that they might very well die. You know, the Supreme Court acknowledged in 2016 in a case called Whole Woman's Healthy Hellerstedt that in the United States, a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. No question that centers that has been put forward to any of the candidates. And we could even go back to 2016 when we think about the sort of intersection of sexual violence, forced pregnancies, Mm. rape. And in that 2016 election cycle, there was litigation that uh, had been started that alleged that the former president had committed sexual violence against a child. Now, it was a lawsuit. A judge had allowed the lawsuit to go forward, and not once was there a question during the debates about that. Not one, or the former president's relationship to Jeffrey Epstein. But what we did hear over and over again were questions about the former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, and her email controversies. So over and over again, email controversies, And not questions about sexual violence, hot microphones where the former president was caught saying how he liked to grope women, Mm. any of those things. Mm. And so this says a lot, too, about the responsibility of media when it comes to our democracy and being effective in how they relate important social political issues to candidates that are running for office. It's so true. And and just right now, I'm reading from the Washington Post, another civil case against Donald Trump begins today. It is the second trial to be held in a pair of cases against Trump brought by his sexual assault accuser, E. Jean Carroll. And so there it is. This is happening right now, a day after the Iowa caucuses. 
That is Dr. Michelle Goodwin, professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown Law School and co-faculty director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. Dorothy Fadiman is a documentary filmmaker, and she's been patiently waiting. We were trying to increase her volume. So let's see how that's going. Dorothy, why don't you jump in here and tell us, you know, did you ever think in the decades you've been working on these issues, you you talk about your abortion experience back in 1962. Did you ever think the Republican Party would go this far? Well, that's what inspired the film in the first place. It looked like then President Bush might stack the Supreme Court to overturn Roe, which is why I made the film when abortion was illegal. And I felt the important thing to do was to hear from people who had survived back alley abortions, self-induced abortions, as well as those who lived to had lost a relative to a back alley or self-induced abortion. And what happened when I began to show that film is not only was it nominated for the Oscar, but it was also shown Dorothy, I'm so sorry to cut you off. We're having a really hard time with your line, so we're going to try again to improve your sound. I'm really sorry about that. Hopefully we can get that sound improved because we'd really love to hear from you uh, given the incredible work that you've done. Um, while we do that, Professor Goodwin, you know, going back to the the statement you made, just about the the abuse that women and girls endure and the fact that we tend to brush that under the rug in this society. There are these stories that do stand out, but I just wonder what will it take to gain traction? For example, uh, Carter Sherman with Vice wrote back in July, a piece called Domestic Abusers Are Using Abortion Bans to Control Their Victims. After Roe v. Wade fell, the National Domestic Violence Hotline saw a 99% increase in callers reporting that people were trying to control their reproductive choices. So there are great reporters like Carter Sherman working on these stories day in and day out. But what can we do to elevate these stories? I mean, you do it on your pad- podcast. We try to do it here. But what can we do to bring this to a debate, a political debate, for example? Because there are very thoughtful journalists and there are journalists who've wanted to elevate these stories. But we also have to think about the structure of what our newsrooms have looked like. Who are the people that can green light stories? Who are the people in Hollywood that can green light narratives there too? You know, we're we're starting from a deficit model where women have been blocked out of control. And we see some shifts which have been welcomed um, in the organization of newsrooms. But let's be clear, the models that we have seen over time have do- been dominant with men at the top. And these were not issues that they saw as important or lives that they saw as important because there are socioeconomic concerns that are here, too. When we're talking about these issues disproportionately affecting women who were poor, uh, who were of color, those are people who have not been well centered across various aspects of our society. These are individuals who've been demeaned in our society. If you think about the 1980s and 
the um, framing of the welfare queen, this woman who's going to usurp our resources, who's going to hurt our economy. She's having way too many children and she has a black face. Right. It is a sort of stereotype. We think about the stereotype of the the crack mom, the the bad mother who doesn't care for her children. It was a narrative throughout the 1980s and the 90s. Meanwhile, the backdrop of that, we have no disparity as a consistent rate of illicit drug use between black women and white women, a higher rate of white women using um, opioids, right? And there's no sort of negative story there. So I, I bring that out and I elevate it just so that we understand the kinds of implicit and explicit biases that have long existed in how we cover stories affecting the lives of women and girls, and then how there's been a sort of prurient doubling down when it's come to the life experiences of women of color. And I don't think that we can avoid that. And it has implications then that are far from the news because then it influences political discourse, socioeconomic discourse, and how people are treated um, on the daily basis. But I do think that there is change afoot because we see newsrooms changing and we see editorial boards uh, changing. And so that is a positive. Right. And I just have to add one more example, because I think it's so important to elevate the voices of these girls that are being forced to have a child as they are children themselves. Um, Time magazine, an incredible piece by Charlotte Alter, August of last year. She wasn't able to get an abortion. Now she's a mom. Soon she will start seventh grade. On January 11th, Ashley, her name has been changed. The uh, 13-year-old began throwing up so much that her mom took her to the emergency room at Northwest Regional Medical Center in Clarksdale, Mississippi. When her blood work came back, the hospital called the police. One nurse came in and asked Ashley, what have you been doing? Her mom recalls. And that is when they found out she was pregnant and then her mom broke down. So the first question the nurse asks is, what have you been doing? How shocking and how humiliating Right. And so that connects us with the narratives that we've seen in healthcare too, where there are implicit and explicit biases. I mean, can you imagine asking this vulnerable child, what have you been doing? How did you put yourself in this situation? It is cruel. And so what we see coming out of these times too, with the the sexual assaults and the violence, as you mentioned, statistically, what has been reported for decades from the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control and more, is that rates of violence, domestic violence increases during the time that a woman happens to be pregnant. And we know what the abortion bans that have taken place in the United States, many have no exceptions for rape or incest. And when they do have exceptions for rape or incest or to protect the health and safety of the of the pregnant person, they are far more illusory than real. Very difficult to access. We see that in the state of Texas, where the Supreme Court of Texas has basically said that these exceptions will not apply in the state of Texas. We know that through the Kate Cox story, um, a pregnancy that was afflicted uh, with non-viability with trisomy 18, where her life was at risk, where infertility, if she could survive the pregnancy, that there was a strong potential of future infertility, where her doctor said that her life is at risk. She may die if she continues this pregnancy. Uh, Where a district court judge said that, yes, the abortion exception 
in Texas should apply to situations like this only for the Texas Supreme Court than to follow up and say, no, she doesn't qualify. Circumstances like this don't qualify. Well, if Kate Cox, a white woman in Texas who comes from means where she is able to articulate for herself, if she can't even obtain an abortion to save her life in the state of Texas, what chances does anyone else have in that state Mm -hmm. and around the country in states where there are abortion bans? You know, I want to be sensitive around this question because I I am so grateful for people like Kate Cox and others who have come forward to share their stories. I think this is so important. But one thing I'm noticing in the media, Professor, Professor Goodwin, is there is such a focus on the women who desperately wanted their children, who possibly had a fetal anomaly and is now suing the state of Texas. I mean, we're hearing so many stories about these cases. And again, I do not want to minimize them, but I almost feel like we're walking down a dangerous path if we if the major media spend the majority of their time focusing on these cases mm-hmm. and not the cases of someone who maybe had a one-night stand and doesn't want to be pregnant, that is as legitimate uh, as oh. someone like Kate Cox. But we're Absolutely. not going there. Well, I think that there's, in, in terms of the strategies, the the strategies are to try to build sympathy and empathy And to the extent that the ballot initiatives have been successful in terms of instantiating the constitutional right to an abortion in in state legislatures, I think part of the momentum behind that has been um, to use these narratives. Um, They evoke uh, sympathy um, and empathy from people who found themselves in those circumstances. But your underlying question is so incredibly important. The 14th Amendment of the United States says that um, citizens are people who are born, right? They're, they're not what uh, courts are now calling and, and anti-abortion lawmakers are now calling the, the unborn. It is something that has never existed in law, this idea of unborn having rights. And it's been a campaign that has been used to undermine the constitutional protections, the civil liberties and civil rights of girls and women and people with the capacity of pregnancy sort of idea that um, when embryos begin development, when fetuses begin development, that they are on a constitutional standing that is equal to living women and living girls. It's, it's unheard of. Um, It is something that has become weaponized now in these particular spaces. And what this has meant is that, the, our concepts that have been so important to American liberty, embedded in um, the Declaration of Independence in our Constitution, liberty, freedom, equality, that somehow these don't apply in these times now to women. And that is including autonomy and privacy over one's own body and one's own private decision making. It's actually also very troubling that women have had to come forward and now these kind of reportings about their private medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Men are don't have to come forward to talk about their vasectomies, um, about strokes, about heart attacks, about um, being in crisis, in-stage renal disease, which affects their kidneys, means their kidneys are dying, or that there is 
some withering of their liver and organs. None of that do men have to create some sort of narrative about. Not at all. But you find that in these times, there has become this kind of showcasing of women having to come forward and talk about things that are intimate, otherwise private, that they shouldn't have to reveal to anybody. And it's a kind of exceptionalism that we should be deeply worried about. We're going to take a quick break. Dr. Michelle Goodwin is professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown Law School. She's the executive producer of Ms. Studios and host of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. After a break, we'll hopefully go back to Dorothy Fadiman, who's been producing documentaries with a focus on social justice and human rights for almost five decades. The Oscar-nominated short film, When Abortion Was Illegal, Untold Stories, became the first of three in the trilogy from the back alleys to the Supreme Court and beyond. This is Your Call. We'll be back after this. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will discuss the lawsuits challenging abortion bans across the country and the increasing threat of legal action against people who have abortions, doctors who provide them, and even people who miscarry. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email yourcall at kalw.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a story to share... How do you think we got to this place? What is the Republican Party's end game? How much further are they willing to go? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Dr. Michelle Goodwin is professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown Law School, executive producer of Ms. Studios, host of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin, and author of Police the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Dorothy Fadiman has been producing documentaries with a focus on social justice and human rights for almost five decades. Then the short film, When Abortion Was Illegal, Untold Stories, was nominated for an Oscar. Dorothy, I'm sorry we're having problems with your line, but why don't you jump in here again? And, and just based on what you've been hearing, what would you like to add to the conversation about where we are today? Well, what I'd like to add is the... Can you hear me well enough now? Yes, much better. Great. What I'd like to add is the importance of reaching young people who have no memory of the back alley days for sure, who often don't read as much as people, middle age and older people do, and who don't even have access to the information about what was in when abortion was illegal. So what we're doing is three things. One is we're re-releasing when abortion was illegal and from danger to dignity online and through the internet worldwide. And access to that is abortion films dash choice at risk dot org. And these films can be seen through that website. Second of all, we're using social media. I have a young staff, and they're very sophisticated at the how to reach people through social media. And I am aware of how powerful it is to take a clip 
from the film, just a short clip, a minute, and in some cases, 10 seconds, and combine that with issues that are happening locally in communities nationwide. So if a certain state is looking at how to change the laws one way or another, this uh, social media provides the ability to show that clip, which can be very powerful in and of itself, and then add information about what to do and how to do it in your community and how to support groups that are working to keep choice, abortion, safe, and legal. And what we're also doing, and Karen uh, Mulhauser, who was the executive director of NARAL several decades ago, is organizing with us house parties that will be happening nationwide in communities and on college campuses where students and community members will be given study guides and guidance and support to not only see when abortion was illegal, but have the opportunity to learn about what they can do in their communities and how they can register to vote and how they can support other people in registering to vote. Dorothy, you mentioned the importance of reaching out to and speaking with young people. What are you hearing from the young people you work with? You also train young people in filmmaking. What really stands out for you? Well, what they're talking about is how to message in ways that will reach their peers. So the way that I originally began to do this work was with clips from the films and the films. What they're now doing is creating graphics which show images in, in popular forms that represent women of all ages and all ethnic backgrounds and, and opening conversations that will reach communities which may not hear this information from other sources. And Dorothy Fadiman will be showing clips of her films at a special online event Sunday, January 21st, 7 p.m. I will be moderating that event. It is free, and we will put up a link at yourcallradio.org. Dorothy Fadiman has been producing documentaries with a focus on social justice and human rights for almost five decades. When Abortion Was Illegal, Untold Stories was a short film, had a short film nomination from the Oscars. We're also joined today by Dr. Michelle Goodwin, Professor of Constitutional Law and Global Health Policy at Georgetown Law School. She's the host of the Ms. podcast on the issues with Michelle Goodwin and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. And now we would like to invite Jessica Mason Piccolo to join us. Jessica is Senior Vice President and Executive Editor of the Rewire News Group, author of The End of Roe v. Wade, Inside the Rights Plan to Destroy Legal Abortion, and co-host of the podcast Boom Lawyered. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you as always, Jessica. You really do paint a an important picture about where you think we are going here. So given the harrowing stories we are reading about young 
children who are being forced to have children or, or women in Texas uh, whose lives are put at risk because they can't get the abortion care that they need. How far do you think the Republican Party is willing to go? Oh, I think that the conservative movement has made it clear that they are willing to go as far as it takes to eradicate abortion access in this country by any means that they can. You know, we're coming up on what would have been the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. It's also the same time that the anti-choice movement uses to mark uh, that anniversary with the March for Life. And their theme this year um, for that gathering is make abortion unthinkable. And those of us who understand that abortion is often necessary health care that folks have a right to access, understand the, the fallacy in a statement like make abortion unthinkable. You know, I mean, that that is just not the way um, that it works. Yet that is the messaging that they're coalescing around. And even stories, you know, that have really grasped national attention most recently. I'm thinking of the Kate Cox story out of Texas. There is a so much um, and and rightly so outcry over her treatment. And what we hear in the anti-choice community is that this is an opportunity for them to coordinate around protecting uh, folks with disabilities in the womb. So we're not even really having the same conversations that we used to be having um, around abortion care in this country. And that's not even to mention, you know, the stuff that was going on. I mean, we, I, I brought up Kate Cox. It's almost impossible to bring her up without uh, the story of uh, Brittany Watts in, in the same breath, the woman in Ohio who faced criminal prosecution for completing a miscarriage at home. I mean, the, the landscape after Dobbs is dire and the landscape before Dobbs wasn't so great to begin with. Right. And when we talked earlier about how the media coverage was not so great to begin with, how the mm-hmm. media really failed uh, before the Supreme Court overturned Roe to bring up all of these issues. I just wonder what your thoughts are about what we should expect going into this election, because here is a headline from CBS a few days ago. Trump brags about role in overturning Roe, but urges GOP caution on abortion. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, they will continue to try and have it both ways, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade had been a unifying moment um, and cause for the Republican Party, particularly among its most uh, adherent base. And now that they caught the car, um, they need to figure something out. And we're, we're starting to see some of that message around moderation from the party. But I really urge folks um, to be cautious with that, you know, Kellyanne Conway was out there saying that, you know, Republicans should be uh, embracing and, you know, that they're the party that's going to embrace birth control as the answer to Dobbs. And while we just know that that's not true, right, at the same time that they're putting that message out, their legislative actions are doing everything that they can to support further rollbacks in reproductive health. Um, and, and so that's just the truth. You know, we have a really historic moment coming up this spring with the Supreme Court having not one, but two critically important abortion-related cases on its docket, including you know, one that asks the question whether state abortion bans have the power to trump federal law. In that case, uh, EMTALA, which is the federal statute that directs emergency stabilizing care for federally funded hospitals, um, and that care includes abortion. Uh, we would not be asking 
that question at all in a pre-Dobbs era because the federal right uh, to a abortion had been protected. But with Dobbs now, we're asking all sorts of questions in the courts that um, have really far-reaching consequences well beyond just whether folks can immediately access abortion care. At the heart of the Imtala case that I mentioned is the question whether abortion is ever considered healthcare also. And that has absolutely staggering ramifications if the court were to say no. We're going to spend more time on those lawsuits tomorrow, but I'm wondering, Professor Goodwin, do you have any thoughts about these upcoming uh, cases? Well, it's it's tough to know in light of where we are with courts, and I would say that that connects us back with the political process as well. We have a former president who has been very outspoken about um, having delivered on putting people on the courts um, who would uh, follow the, the view that he negotiated, one would say. I mean, this is what he's been saying. You know, I I, I delivered in putting judges and justices on the court that are anti-abortion. And again, it's important to, to think about, you know, 50 years ago with the Supreme Court, you know, again, seven to two decision in Roe v. Wade, five of those seven justices, Republican appointed, um, and we see this um, with the state court level as well. Um, and in fact, now what we see is an infusion of money um, coming from anti-abortion um, activists and advocates who are funneling money into state elections like never before on an anti-abortion platform uh, and agenda. So um, it makes thinking about justice within um, this domain something that we are continuing to unpack uh, to see where there is, you know, arm's length distance amongst individuals who are now judges and justices who've been anti-abortion activists. And again, that's, it's really quite stunning when one just thinks about what this means for the process of uh, the sort of process that we expect in our judiciary to be objective, arm's length, and not influenced by uh, one's own um, political interests. And sentiments. Well, let's hear from a caller. Let's go to Robert in Richmond. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, this is a, a great conversation, but I guess I want to offer my appreciation for Professor Goodwin in terms of offering a broader perspective. I deeply appreciate this uh, because uh, it's not just about women. It's about everything. It's about voting. It's about the fact that we really don't like children uh, in this culture. Uh, There is no help for them. There is no help for people who are at the bottom. Your program grows on inequality are important to continue to hammer away at. I'm concerned because the systemic perspective is very seldom recognized that it isn't just one issue that you can solve uh, in isolation from all of the others. We live in a hustler culture in America. What we really have is an exceptionalism for being uh, a con society. Trump is the greatest example of that, but he's not a one-off. It's deeply ingrained in our culture that the people at the top want to keep their power mostly white men, 
and for us to change, especially in this area, is going to require changes not just at the level of law, but the level of what we do in our universities, our schools, healthcare, and everything else all at once. I know that seems overwhelming. I just like the perspective given that we are not going to get things done unless there is an attack on the whole issue of viral capitalism and going into the whole concept of understanding that we're in a fearful time in the history of the world with a level of uncertainty never before seen in our generation right now. People well, are scared, and that's why they're doing it. I want more men to be on these programs. I want more men to be drawn in and to be discussing these issues and the others at the same time women are. Well, I Robert, I, I appreciate your question, and I, I just want to add one thing, and then I'd love to get our listener, our, our guest to respond. Uh, in January 10th, the AP had a piece called Mississippi Rejects Summer Food Assistance Program for Children. So many mostly Republican states, Alabama, Alaska, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Louisiana, Nebraska, I can keep going, chose not to participate in this program that feeds children. So Professor Goodwin, I, 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 you have made this point every time on the show. Robert made the point. These issues are all connected. How would That's you respond right. to his, his uh, call? Well, I thank him for making that call because it's so critically important. What we see in these times through forced pregnancy is that there will be births, there may be deaths along the way, infant mortality is high in all of these states, very, very high in Mississippi, so is maternal mortality. So if um, the infants actually survive, what will they survive into? In states like Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, uh, South Carolina, and others, where there are high rates of illiteracy, high rates of individuals that don't graduate, not only from high school, but it can be a question mark leaving middle middle schools, states where now they're seeking to uh, reduce the, la- the age in which uh, young people can be in substantive employment, and t- including in factories. Um, what is the future for these individuals? And what we see are states that have refused to expand uh, Medicaid and have shown a disdain and a disregard for the lives of poor people generally and presumably for those that will be the result of these forced pregnancies and forced uh, births. It is really a tragedy. And if you look at something like school lunches, for example, much of this has not been connected to questions with regard to reproductive health rights and access to abortion. But across the United States, there are places that are now penalizing kids if they've not been able to pay for lunches that they were given or pay for breakfasts that they were given, such as they will not be able to go on the field trip. They won't be able to do these other things that are important in terms of rounding out a person's education. How does one then describe a country like that? Mm. How does one describe states like that? These are other ways in which we will see school-to-prison pipelines, birth-to-prison pipelines, birth-to-labor-exploitation pipelines. And 
these this is not hyperbole the 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 caller's comments these are the realities being spouted by members of those state legislatures and it really is chilling jessica what would you add we have about a minute or so left Honestly, Dr. Goodwin said it perfectly. I don't know what I could add um, to that. And it's one reason why her work in particular is so critical and, and was before, but especially now. I think it really is making that connection, though, to the world of views in uh, these states and the world that these um, people will be birthed into, as Dr. Goodwin said, um, and the vision for this country as a whole and continuing that conversation and connecting the dots. We're just honestly starting to. Mm. And to end it with what can we do? Because we have a number of emails from listeners who say, given where we are right now with abortion bans on the books in 15 states, what can we do? So Dorothy, do you want to take that one? And we have another minute left. For house parties where people will have an opportunity to learn how to reach each other reach their legislators, reach their communities with study guides and showing the film when abortion was illegal so that people will have a first-person experience of what it was when abortion was illegal as it is becoming illegal once again. So people can add to the email if they'd like to be notified about these house parties. Dorothy Fadiman has been producing documentaries with the focus on social justice and human rights for almost five decades. The Oscar-nominated short film she made when abortion was illegal became the first of three in the trilogy from the back alleys to the Supreme Court and beyond. She will be showing clips at an online event Sunday, January 21st, 7 p.m. I'll be moderating. You can find information at yourcallradio.org. Dr. Michelle Goodwin is professor of constitutional Institutional Law and Global Health Policy at Georgetown Law School. She's executive producer of Ms. Studios, host of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin, and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Jessica Piccolo is senior vice president and executive editor of the Rewire News Group, author of The End of Roe v. Wade, Inside the Rights Plan to Destroy Legal Abortion, and co-host of the podcast Boom Lawyered. Jessica, Professor Goodwin, and Dorothy, thank you for your important work, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope you can join us tomorrow. We will continue this conversation by discussing the lawsuits challenging abortion bans across the country and the increasing threat of legal action against people who have abortions, doctors who provide them, and even people who miscarry. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at KALW.org. You can listen to all of our past shows at yourcallradio.org. Sign up for our podcast and leave us a review so others can find us. Thanks to Savannah, Harriman and Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 